0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. It's season 17 of Below the Line, and for the first time ever, we're releasing two episodes on the same day. In the spirit of Barbenheimer, we're calling it Turtle Trek. And this episode is about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, the animated film that opened this weekend. You can listen to these first two releases in whatever order you want, but if you want to learn more about how they brought these heroes on a half shell to life, stay with us here. Two guests today, first head of cinematography and longtime friend of the show, Kent Secchi. Kent, great to see you again.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, Skid.
0: And joining us for his Below the Line debut is art director Arthur Fong. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you both here. Note to listeners, given that this film opened so recently, we're going to avoid any plot spoilers today. We are, however, going to dive deep behind the scenes. To start us off, give me a sense of your specific roles on the project and how they fit into the larger production picture.
1: So Skid, uh, my title is Head of Cinematography on the film, and it's as close to a DP on an animated film as you pretty much get. There's one glaring difference, and that is The head of cinematography does not have domain over the lighting. That's actually handled by Arthur Yashar Kasai, the production designer, and Tiffany Lamb, the other art director on the film. They actually govern and design the lighting for the film. And so when I shoot the film, I essentially have to imagine what the lighting is going to be like and frame for that kind of composition. So the camera placement, movement, lensing, the basic staging – that's all under my purview. And that's done fairly early on in the production process. And the art department continues to run with that long after I'm done. And essentially almost painting on the frames to tell the lighters how to place their lights, the color, the value, the tonality, the shadow, the compositional choice of whether it's light on dark or dark on light. That's all coming from that art department. Also, in a live action context, we do what's called pre-visualization or pre-vis, and that is early exploration of sequences and shooting styles even during the the storyboarding process this happens and as we get into more crunchy situations big action sequences oftentimes are redone or reimagined because it's easier than drawing store hand drawn storyboards to do 3D action in a computer than it would be to draw each panel that they need to communicate those concepts
0: okay well that gives us some good context ken now arthur Talk more about where you fit into that and what your responsibilities are.
2: Sure, sure. And, and you know, uh, forgive me, I actually don't have any experience as an art director in live action, so I have uh, no comparison and no understanding of the greatness of art directors in live action film. So I will just go ahead and uh, try and express what, I, what I've learned uh, in my years in animation. Ken said it perfectly, which is a lot of times... For lighting, and I'll, I'll jump back to like the general kind of job of what art director does in animation, but in lighting, it is um, basically painting per frame. I think we what we like about an animation is the control. I mean, that's what also differentiates us from live action is that we have that ability for control. And Essentially, at the end of the day, we're all artists here and like we want to be able to like frame by frame control like the shadows, control where the light falls on characters in the background, kind of knock back backgrounds in the distance, bring your focus to where we want the eye to see, um, speaking with like a, what Previs and Kent does, uh, helping us also figure out time of day so that like, oh, we know or at least Kent knows, okay, this time of day, it's supposed to be afternoon. And then while in the art department, we're coming up with concepts for like, okay, what does an afternoon light feel like in like the New York City or a certain part of the neighborhoods, things like that. So I felt like that kind of collaboration was was really, really important. Uh, and for me, I think the art director is basically like the right-hand man to the production designer. CG Automation grew up to like two, three hundred artists working on the show. And at some point, the production designer is so busy with meetings trying to, you know, kind of do reviews with supervisors of all different departments that if there's like any kind of meetings and like management that he needs the art director to kind of execute and help with, we're kind of there to also help with that. And along with like the vision, so the production designer might have an idea for an environment or like a certain look and feel of a, a sequence, and he might just be able to pull together some references, photo references or artwork, and then we will help execute that or also again, delegate that to the art department to execute. So in the big picture, I, I feel like the art director, again, is more of a, a collaborative kind of asset with the production designer and director to... Just kind of manage and herd the team because, especially on this show, Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem, where the show style is so prominent and so different that we have to herd, in a way, herd all three hundred, you know, employees and artists and creators to match that style. And it's not just something that is proprietary out of like something you could just buy online. It's like all those little details. It really just takes a a, a huge team and like a very sharp eye to kind of guide everyone kind of back to the director and the production designer's vision.
0: Well, we want to spend more time on that story style, whether or not you've seen the film. I have seen the film and I think it's fantastic. That's not a spoiler. But if you've even seen a preview, this film is delivering what I think is a unique look, even in this space with other films trying new things. I want to hear more about what makes this film unique.
2: To me, I think it really is just the... And show style is such a general idea of like... Because it's every component, right? I think like the modeling department did something great. Kent's team and cinematography did something incredible and unique. But I I would say we, we embraced imperfection in our movie in a world where everyone's striving for perfection. And in an industry where CG animation... It's hard to allow that because if you were to open up a sphere in Maya, it's it's a perfect sphere. And we as the artists on Ninja Turtles went in and just broke that sphere, almost like smashing it with our, uh, playing it almost with like clay, like yeah. handmade. Everything just feels like handmade. The perspective is broken. And that's something really hard to, in a way, almost unlearn. Right. All of us now and in our, in our years of like perfectionism and like our years of education at art school or in, in animation and working in film, you know, we strive for perfection. And now to unlearn all that. But in a way, like to bring back, I would say, like the purity of creation where we weren't influenced by, I don't know, perfect techniques or any of that. And that was very difficult. I think a very, a very challenging. Uh, I mean, just a challenge in general. was, It was very, very
1: fun. You know, you hear the the comparison to Spider-Verse, and I think what we're seeing is not necessarily similar to Spider-Verse, but the effect of Spider-Verse on the industry. So Spider-Verse came in and said, we're not going to do the physics-based lighting look and feel. We're going to break all the rules, and we're going to take our inspiration from the printed image of a comic book. And it really it sort of that spun up this whole different look to that film, and it was It was hailed and and successful like other films have tried doing similar things, but been as less financially successful or maybe less creatively successful as Spider-Verse. But that allowed other shows to go wild with the style. And by the way, that's actually not cheaper. It's not easier to like unlearn a way of doing things. Or most studios have built an entire pipeline around a physics based approach to all departments. And so now you're essentially blowing that up and saying, "Well, we're going to do something different." And our inspiration came specifically from high school teenage art, and that notion that when you're in high school, you're just not quite as sophisticated, and you take it very seriously. Little things like you hold the pencil really, really hard, and you're okay. and you're super like pressing hard on the paper, and like you haven't learned this refinement of technique, and you kind of get to the end this. Not quite what you wanted it to be, but you're like, okay, and you're doing it on a notebook pad, so like that sort of gives you an, an ability for it to be okay, that it's not great. Or like in my case, in a peachy folder, that was a brand of folder that everybody had, and you would just dr- draw all over it and change it into something else. And like at the beginning of the show, I remember uh, Yashar, the production designer, and and Jeff wanted everyone to bring in their high school art. And like they put it on a sync sketch, which is a tool that we use to look at art. And we all looked at it and we're trying to dissect what it was about that that we really liked and what was cool about it. And I think that became our touchstone, just as the comic book was the touchstone for Spider-Verse, at least the initial. They've gone to all these different worlds now. They've even really gone even beyond that, obviously, in the latest one. But in the original Spider-Verse, that was the inspiration. And for us, the inspiration was getting back to what was authentically teenage. And Going back to what what Arthur was saying about the, feeling sculpted, like a broken sculpture, one of the things that Arthur told the character modeler, one of the character models was uh, this great uh, artist named Paulette Emerson. It was, I want it to feel like it's sculpted with tools that are just a little bit too big. Like you couldn't get that fine that fine little thing, but you had the giant one, right? And so you carved out uh, – you just took a little way, a little bit too much clay, but you couldn't go back and put it back together. And I think those little things are what add up to make it look like the way it is. And then even further than that, so you can't just make it look like a high school drew it, but it's almost a deconstructed high school drawing, right? Because the the shading sometimes doesn't quite go on top of the image. So like it's almost blown apart in a little bit of a way, which is super charming to me and super interesting. And almost every review talks about it and some dance around it, some see it right away. But I really have to commend... Arthur and the whole team because if you see every the artist's individual work on Instagram or like their own portfolio it's nothing like that with the exception of Woodrow White who is the character designer that's his style like his style is that thing he was not did not work in features he's a fine artist and so he was plucked out of the ether and put onto the show and allowed to design these characters and he just sort of did what naturally came to him and the rest of us you know the rest of the people in the art were, like, just being inspired by that and sort of running running with that idea of what he was doing. But it really was an interesting process to watch evolve out of the art department. I really have to say everyone that came in that was new, it was a struggle. Arthur, would you say it was a struggle for, like, the first few assignments for almost everybody? Oh, so many. I mean,
2: it was a struggle, not even the first few assignments, like, to the very, very end <laughs> of the movie. It's like <laughs> – like because I think a lot of times the, like the subconscious and autopilot of our, like, perfectionism will come out. Right. And, and and people think it's like, oh, you you're drawing very loosely and it's like, oh, you, you can just draw very scribbly or imperfect. It's so intentional. It's actually not it's not easy to draw because our hand just wants to draw a perfect square. Our hand just wants to draw like, you know, we just when we look at an image, we know exactly where the horizon line is, we know exactly where like vanishing points are. But you're like, Okay, today the vanishing point does not exist. And <laughs> like it kind of goes back in like an homage to like a contemporary and fine artists like later in their life i think like someone who i looked at a lot was like david hockney's work you know i think like he started to explore like okay i've painted landscapes and humans for like decades and he's just bored he's just like i know that the sun sets here i know like the horizon line or like you know this s curve or these like perfect composition rule of thirds you know all this stuff he's just i'm so sick of it (laughs) and and you start to push yourself to be like i'm going to intentionally break perspective or break compositions in a way it's almost like embracing tangents like we're always like you know we get a slap on our hands to be like no like you can't have it you can't have those two points of like a tv and like a a, a, i don't know side table meet and we're like you know what we're gonna do that (laughs) but it's also a very care there's a there's a fine line between yeah. right, in, like intentional imperfection and just a just a mistake. Up
1: a sloppy. Like there's yeah, this the, sloppy. You can you can veer into sloppiness so quickly. When movies start, when animated films start, you go to almost every meeting because there's not that many meetings, and you're trying everyone's trying to discover the show in an animated film. And so I would sit in, even though I had no work to show, in the art department meetings, and it was so fascinating to watch the discussion and how active. The director, Jeff Rowe, this is a credit to Jeff, I think more so like he was so in there with it, pointing out the detail that spoke to him, that what resonated with him as as authentic. And I think that's that's the thing that I, I think is a success of the film is the authenticity to the teenage experience. Like that for me is something that I think viewers have picked up on and reviewers have picked up on. And it, it goes across all aspects of the movie. Even my department, the cinematography, was super inspired by a teenage experience. In my very first meeting with I have never met Jeff before the show, and I, I meet Jeff on Zoom and I ask him, Well, you know, do you have any reference? Should I look at something that feels like your movie? And he says, Spike Jones. And not Spike Jones, more recent, but early Spike Jones when he was doing skate videos, and uh, he had done this collaboration with Arcade Fire called "Scenes from the Suburbs." And to watch that short film, which is hard to find, and it was this idea of hanging out with your friends, making movies, like that was his base level of it. And so we were inspired by that, and then even further inspired by the imperfection of the art. And if you watch the film, This is in the trailer, so this is not a spoiler, but like there's this moment in which it for a second, the film looks like it's going to be like, oh, it's these are the super heroic turtles from the 84 comic. They have the white eyes and then it switches in one shot into our version of the turtles and they're giving each other a hard time. And the camera all of a sudden goes from a very cinematic, like perfect James Cameron camera (laughs) to like this handheld kind of, oh, wait a minute. What am I looking at? I don't know what. Who's talking? Oh, no, I have to look over here. And that's all intentional. And the funny thing about handheld is that when you do it in my department, like you don't have a fully animated character. You have a wooden previs character that doesn't have full facial shapes. There's no lighting, like no final lighting. It looks very primitive, and the handheld stands out. It looks wrong. And so I've been on shows where you have the handheld, and it's like it just looks wrong, and it's noted out. And by the end, by the time you get to the finished product, the film itself, there's no handheld because it just felt so strange. And so we are trying to add this imperfection at multiple stages in the previs early on. And then we need to have it there so we could tell the animators it was going to be there so that when they animated the character, they knew if the camera all of a sudden jostled, they didn't have to move the character to stay centered, that it was supposed to go off of the character. And then furthermore, we have to do it, refine it one more time at the end during what we call flow or final camera. So it's almost like you redo it at the end. Much to the chagrin of the vendor, Mikos, it turned out they spent a lot more time doing final camera than they had initially thought they would because it's almost on every shot. So you're like doing all these things to finesse it, just to add the feeling of imperfection into the movie, that feeling of made by hand. So the feeling that all the art and every image was made by hand and the dialogue, the having the actual voiceover actors record together in a room and improv and work on and change some of the, the scripting to be more what they would actually say, worked with the camera to make that feeling of Spike Jones, even if it's subtle, even if it's like something that like you may not be aware of when you're first watching it, it's all there. And that creates that combined subtext of experience. And I think more so than any other film I've done, and I've worked on some really talented, I mean, obviously these super talented people in all these movies, but like the art carried the entire film. I watched it inform every department along the way, and it was super impressive to me because we also had a bunch of first timers on the movie. We had a lot of people who, who were in leadership roles in the creative department for the first time. And the few of us, like, I'm the old man of the group, you know, like felt like, <laughs> oh, I, you know, here I am. I've done a lot of these things. But the youthful, in, you know, enthusiasm, I think, really carried through in a lot of ways and that it was ins- inspirational to me as somebody who's done a lot of movies. So like, at least, quote, unquote, a lot of movies. Let's put that in quotes. Arthur, what do you, uh, what, what was your take coming in? You got started a little bit after we had gotten going. In fact, you were playing catch up. What was your impression coming into the process when you did I was looking for something like this
2: to work on you know I had just finished at Sony and it took like a few months off and this is just kind of the the way at least for me how my career and how I like my career to work which is you know after working on a film that takes three four sometimes five years to make I just needed some time off so around the time I was looking for work the previous art director had uh I think I had to step away and I was originally just coming in to be a character painter because a lot of my background and and skill come from just like like almost helping, we'll get like a 3D model, but I need to kind of help do a concept of like, okay, what show style will look a picture, like what our character painted might look like on screen. So it's like be going in, zooming into like 800% and like painting, like designing the pixel highlight in the eye of a character. But when I saw that, like, oh, they were really trying, bo- they're really bold and trying to push for something unique and imperfect. And it, again, it, I, I keep going back to the same feeling, which is just like I have been working on animated movies that strive for perfection for so long. That it was nice to just like I want to break something. I want something to look like deconstructed in a way. And we, ha- I feel like a lot of people throughout uh, working on a lot of different projects. You know, there are times where not everybody agrees on that vision and then that's where you get troubles with like let's just say maybe the production designer doesn't get along with the director the director might go over the production designer to push the art department to do something different and it just becomes chaos but somehow like this team was put together in a way where everyone agreed that like they wanted to do something different seeing that i think was like was really really exciting and i knew that okay, this is a time where like, I don't need to hold back. If I want like a squiggly line for, uh for treads on a tire, I'm going to get squiggly lines. Like I don't need to go and design like perfect.
1: The, the, the groove, we do some research on some Michelin yeah. R55s. <laughs>
2: and you're like, this is yeah. the tire
1: that's going to go on this no, thing.
2: No, <laughs> none of that. And it's, it's so great. Cause it really does go back to like the pure essence of like, what is that object? And it's, it was really exciting. And also like, we're also so lucky that at that time, you know, Spider-Verse has came out and a lot of other movies doing very unique show styles that are pushing away from your standard CG look. So DreamWorks had done bad guys that just come out. Puss in Boots. Yeah. Yeah. Puss Puss in Boots. Boots was coming out. So we were actually able to look at those trailers. And I mean, some of the movies I did go see in theaters and just see, okay, like I can see when you pause the frame like or pause the like a YouTube the trailer or something and you can see the the differences and like how they're trying to push the the look to be different. But somehow when it blurs by you when there's anim- when there's camera movement that all always is happening you start realizing oh like you you miss all of that. And so it, it it gave us more leverage and also more room to be like well let's just keep pushing it for bolder life. because yeah. there was a time where I think for turtles and even on you know, on our show that like environments and stuff where Still, I think they're very hesitant with the line work. Like it was very nice. Like it's almost like thinking of it as um, everybody was drawing with a um like a lead pencil or like a mechanical pencil. You know, so it was very thin, like 0. 0.5 millimeter or something. And then I came in and well, I'm like, okay, well, if we watch, just like we had a look at picture test done by Micro. So you're looking at it, you're like, okay, well, if you pause the frame, you can see all the beautiful like you know show style kind of techniques they're using. But when you play it. You see nothing. It just
1: blurs. It, blur- by. it blurs like, by really fast. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So then I was like, okay, well, here's our chance to just like we have to make sure it is seen and felt. Like that. I think the big, the yeah. the big, uh, the takeaway from this is the feeling of it, even when there's all this moving, because we know it's an animated film. It's gonna move. There's gonna be action sequences where you can't see anything, and so I was like, all right, let's just go for bigger strokes like imagine now like throw away your mechanical pencil (laughs) pick up a sharpie pick up a sharpie and start just making lines that go beyond again breaking the silhouettes and stuff and this is where like it 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 does feel a little dangerous sometimes where a lot of times when we're we're reviewing artwork or we're reviewing like a a scene from the film we're not seeing it play we're just seeing a screenshot of it and sometimes it just looks like abstract art and you're like well is any you can't read anything like you can't read any of the characters and the environment. Everything is wrong, but we almost just have to trust the process, trust the process that like, okay, we believe this is going to work. And like, let's just approve it. Let's just get like, close our eyes
1: and like approve <laughs> S- this. Squint it, thing. squint a little yes. bit. and It's going to, it's going to work. Great. Actually. It's so it's funny. Your, your story is very <laughs> similar to like the moment with Jeff and the handheld. There was a moment where like we were early in the movie we were trying to get some sequences through. And, of course, there's this sort of push to, like, let's get this going. Let's get it done. We have to send one sequence to Mikros, the vendor, to get this going. And the handheld had gotten a little bit re- – actually, a lot of bit reduced. And I grabbed a bunch of reference from live-action movies. And some things that you wouldn't normally think of, like, we actually grabbed reference from Silver Linings Playbook. There's a great scene with Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence in a diner. And they're having a conversation in a diner, and it's all handheld. And the camera is moving a lot. It's like all over the super active. And I grabbed all his reference just so like, hey, and then the sequence we were working on, we looked at both. And that's when Jeff was like, oh, we got to put it back in. And, this, and he literally used the phrase, I, meaning him, have to take a leap of faith. And that was a big moment for me because it allowed me to be like, okay, great, I'm going to push hard for this. And I can't tell you, as someone who works on it, all the people listen to your podcast, they work on movies. And you're looking for permission, almost always, to go harder, right? That is something that you, as a creative person, want. And that came all the way from Seth Rogen. Like, Seth Rogen and Jeff were so simp- simpatico in this belief that the best idea wins, it doesn't matter when it happens that you have to go with the best idea. And this sequence on the rooftop when they're throwing this watermelon around and cutting it with the sword, we redid completely from a cinematography perspective because it wasn't right. And they and then they re-recorded the kids together, and it all happened at once where the camera, the performance, and we said, oh, wait a minute. We should pan off or we should we should not know where who's going to talk, so we should use that to motivate the camera move to like this other – the adjusts. And all of that happened at once. And when it did and Seth and Jeff saw it in the screening room, they're like, this is our movie. This is the way we're going to do this. And it was like this big sort of aha moment. But you're looking as this creative person, you're always wanting those moments because they give you permission to like go further. And I think that's one of the things I really give Jeff a lot of credit for, for me is getting that passive permission to go harder on it, to go further, push it, push it further until it breaks and then have him say, well, maybe it's a little too much now. But like, I would rather, you know, have somebody who's willing to reevaluate and then go further. And that was always Jeff, this entire. And I think it was the same in the art department for you, Arthur.
2: Always, always. Yeah, it was uh, so challenging to work with someone <laughs> who demands so much from you like i think sometimes in other films i'm able to like all right maybe there's an assignment where i'm just too tired something happened i'm like i could just wing this one and it's always those where uh jeff's like oh it's not right you know, like okay you try he it got again. you like, oh, like he... <laughs> yeah he caught me And it's like oh i'm like does it really need to be this different or like that's actually something so great because i, I that that's where greatness comes from. Like we don't let anything slip by. And and uh in, in one of our reviews he had said God is in the details. You know, I think somebody was trying to convince him to be like, you know, you're not gonna see it. It's just like a little you know picture frame in the background and like you know it's it's only yeah less than a second. He's like no man like this is what makes all those little things do add up. And and it is just it it goes back to the idea of like a teenage artist. Like they don't like I'm thinking about when I was at high school drawing Dragon Ball Z, every line of the anatomy of like the the bicep or the shoulder, I don't know idea what that line was supposed to suggest. but I made sure to add the line <laughs> and or like every <laughs> crease on the, the the folds in your shirt, you're like, I don't know like the physics of like folds on a shirt, but I'm gonna add it because I see there's like, three or four lines. And it's like that. And and I think uh, we we brought a lot of that into into this movie. And it was really, it's really
1: charming. And it's really fun. I was amazed after. So when we I had finished on the film, Spider-Verse comes out, the newest one. And a lot of our artists on the show came from Sony. They left Sony to work on this show. So much so that I think Phil Lord called Jeff and said stop stealing our artists, or something, <laughs> something like that just in a joking way. Phil and Chris were producers on Mitchell's and Jeff Rowe was a co-director on it. So they he has he had a good relationship with them. So it wasn't like an it wasn't like an actual angry call. But after Spider-Verse came out, a number of artists started showing their work from Spider-Verse. And so I could literally look at what they had made on Spider-Verse and compare it to what they made on our film and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe your ability to recontextualize your talent into something completely different. I felt that way about this amazing young artist named Kellen Jett. And I saw his Spider-Verse stuff. And then I saw his turtle stuff. And I'm like, oh, it's blowing my mind how different it was. It was really cool for me to see that stuff and to sort of see the difference between what someone created on that show versus what they created on our show. And a lot of artists have a hard time with that like that's a hallmark of a very talented artist is someone who can adapt between shows but even really talented artists can have a hard time with the fit like the show could just be very different and i felt that one of the things i noticed was like oh my gosh like like when i see the two differences on the same artist it was really impressive to me i mean arthur like you were on wish dragon very different show and then you come to ours and like just to be able to switch gears that's really impressive yeah to me.
2: i mean i get bored of myself all the time i hate my. I, I just i get so bored i do i do that's my that's my problem and i don't know like, uh but which is fun. which i think this is the perfect industry for me because the other thing is I, I love trying out new things and i love also supporting someone's vision and going back to a little bit of like the art director role i think like every production skin if you're to have this again with a different animated film i'm sure like the art director on that would probably have a different uh just what it, what they did, same job title, but what they did on the project it was probably different than mine. And I think for me, I really felt like what Kent was saying was just because we did have a lot of uh, first timers on the show and leadership, but because their vision was so strong, like they just earned my respect in a yeah. way where, I'm, okay, what am I doing here? My, my job <laughs> here, honestly, and no one asked me to do this. My job here is to support them and support their vision. And I think a lot of times you, you might get productions where like someone's ego gets in the way to be like well why is that person in charge when like that person yeah 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 has never done this or that it was like oh i threw all that stuff out the window
1: i was like okay. yeah i think that that yeah. was one of the things that's unique about the show and i think was part of the magic of it was the use of the first timer, the rookie I, I think it allowed permission to be different and to like well i've never done this before this is what i would do kind of thing and i think that was part of the success of the show and it's a testament to the producers and the all the leadership to accept that and the studio to be on board with that idea, that notion of, okay, well, we're gonna put some rookie or unseasoned people in these very important leadership positions. And we're just gonna believe they can do it and support them the best we can. And for Jeff, the director, to have the confidence, that's a big, big thing. I, I said to all of them, I could just I, I have a feeling this is gonna be a very special film. So, you should remember what this is like because if you work long enough, they're not going to be like this. They're going to have more misses than hits, you know? And so, for you to have this experience, you should really just try to be in the moment as much as you can and to remember this and savor it because it's hard to replicate. The alchemy of great filmmaking is elusive, it's so elusive. The longer I do it, the more difficult it seems you know to, to actually get through and make something that's good and critically accepted and and a success which we don't know if those things are going to happen but we certainly have done something creatively successful in my opinion from a visual storytelling standpoint it's really it was really gratifying to be on
0: but again with this approach and maybe it's the assistant director in my background that that is triggering this anxiety, but you're talking about bringing (laughs) all of these creative people in. You're talking about basically letting them off the leash to try new things and to push in a new direction. You're also talking about inexperienced leadership. How does this movie make sure that everyone is rowing in the same direction under those circumstances?
1: There were moments that were very precarious. And I think it put a lot of pressure on the more experienced people to step up. And to help guide that. And I saw firsthand what Arthur was doing from where I sat. And I was so impressed with him being able to be a voice of reason, but not a nag. There's a difference, right? You have to be able to, to help guide, but yet people are empowered, right? And so you're giving a lot of bad news. There's a lot of times you're giving news that's like, well, this isn't quite right. We haven't quite got it yet. You need to do it again. You know, if you're a veteran, an experienced person, you, you've taken it on the chin enough times to know it's not a big deal. But if you're new to film or new to the industry or new to the job it's hard to hear or it's always hard but like you have you don't have the experience to go back and say it's not a big deal I can dust myself off and get going and I don't know what happened in the se- behind the scenes with Arthur Yashar and Tiffany the co-art director I, I I don't know what they were doing or saying but it seemed like the artists were always motivated you know, and they always came back and were willing to give it another shot or didn't take it personally in a way and were, were able to bounce back. And that is a, that's a skill. It's a, you know, and I don't know if that was a conscious thing, Arthur, on your your team's part or not. I don't know exactly what was going on there for you.
2: Uh, I mean, just deadlines are useful. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, part of our, like, what we complained a lot about was just like, okay, like this movie needs definitely needed more time. And there are things I, now when i I think about it i don't think anyone watching the film would see the difference you know but of course there are designs in the film and like sequences of the film that i'm like oh i knew like if we had more time that would be (laughs) bad yeah yeah exactly exactly but it's fine i also felt like we we knew that at least from what i was kind of hearing through the grapevines it's like okay like We can't move the release of the film because it had to go with all these releases of like toys and products and all these big, which I think now is like, you know, at that time, all of us were kicking and screaming and yelling at at our producer, being like, do your job and like, (laughs) give us more time. But now you're like, oh crap, it's like, it's so helpful. Like, I went to Target to buy some like household items and I'm like, <laughs> I see turtles up <laughs> everywhere. And, and uh it's wild. I'm like, okay, so I'm thinking now like if
1: we had missed that deadline. It's a disaster. Oh, that is it would have been a huge that disaster. that is that is a disaster. And like so the best idea wins runs up against that problem because there was a version of the movie that we had in early twenty twenty two. That is not the movie we made. I always joke that my life and my career and my job, even my job is Zeno's paradox. And Zeno's paradox is the mythology of the archer who's trying to hit the center target and like doesn't hit the first time, but halves the distance each time and, but never hits the target. It's always getting closer, but never quite gets to fruition. And that was the way our story went also was like, first we had like a quarter, like the first act was really good. And then we had half a great movie. Then we had three quarters of a great movie. Then we had to redo the last quarter and the, the finale. And like, But it kept happening and the studio, to its credit, saw the potential and allowed us to keep doing the rewrites and the redo. What that applied was pressure to the rest of us to work faster when we when we had the solid thing to do and to ramp really, really hard, like the month of November, December, January, February and part of March for me were really, really challenging because we had to really get a bunch of the movie done in an extraordinarily short amount of time, than, shorter than anything I've ever had to do in my career. And so we ramped up to the biggest team on my, in my department that I've ever had, like managing that team that's all remote in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. We just had people working you know, all the time to try to get this thing done, but it was worth it to me. To me, it was worth it because I, I believed in the movie. To the studio's credit, they're like, whatever you need to do to get this done, like you come to us if you need more resources. And that's something you'd never hear. You'd, you know, I mean, like in <laughs> we're in the day in the age of belt tightening. So like everything's downward pricing pressure to like be given all of those permissions to like seek greatness, go for it with the team you need to go for it with, have great art and just believe in it. That's a rare thing to happen. And I think that's why we ended up with the movie we did. So you've alluded to
0: some specific ideas of the technique and approach on the film. But with all this work behind the scenes, let's tie it to something specific in the movie itself. And I'm wondering if you guys can say either a favorite sequence or something about technique that when I go see the film again or when someone's seen the film for the first time, what should they be looking for? And give us some backstory behind that element that, you know, maybe is another level of the film for the viewer.
2: I had a big grin on my face when you asked that question, Skid, because uh, I felt like I sacrificed so much creativity on this project so that I could allow everyone else to do greatness. You know, like you. a lot of times I feel like you have to step out of the way in order for greatness to really shine and kind of go through. But that being said, I love cars. I love vehicles. And when I saw the chance to design vehicles, I took that. I was just like. I'm sorry. This is like my realm and uh, what's so great about it, I love our job, you know, sometimes, but like occasionally when this happens, like that very rare moment where like VizDev will influence the board artists to change their idea of how they board or how they board out a sequence or write a sequence. Like that's what I live. That doesn't happen often because a lot of time there's a hierarchy of like, you know, you do boards and then the artist kind of designs around the storyboards. But you know, I think when we first saw the sequence of the turtles kind of meeting the mutants for the first time under the bridge, that was born in a way where like, oh, it's supposed to just be like two Escalades and like a limousine. And you you think that Superfly is just this like gangster thug that's just, just normal know, human kind normal of normal human. Yeah. 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 Human. And, and it makes a lot of sense. But I'm like, ah, it's mutant mayhem. And as a kid, I I loved all of the Ninja Turtle toys. You know, I had like the helicopter. I had, I mean, I, my parents were able to afford that one. But uh, <laughs> I saw a chance to be like, I'm going to make vehicles that look like mutant toys. And I remember I told Jeff, like, I'm so busy, but please just give me two weeks. If you, if you give me two weeks, like, I could do my day job. But and also, like, in the evenings and the weekends, I'm going to propose you something. And I think he also just, all right, Like, I also had to, like, fight production to be like, I'm not going to show anybody anything, but just trust me. At the end of this two weeks, I'm going to have something for you guys that's going to blow your minds. I was very confident, but at the same time, a bit of fear kind of will creep in. The I could put all this effort and time into creating these vehicles, and like it could just get thrown in the trash, you know? Because it's like, all right, well, it doesn't really quite fit with the sequence because story is king, and I, and I really do I do believe that we can have a beautiful film. but The story makes no sense. Like no one's going to watch it. Everyone's going to be bored. But somehow like that scene when I had designed and proposed these mutant vehicles to Jeff, it sparked all this inspiration for Seth and him to rewrite like a chase scene that has to do with cars. Oh, yeah. so
1: originally there wasn't. Originally there was just Yeah, there, there wasn't a chase. Yeah, was a, a, fist fight. Yeah, a there was, yeah, there was a fist fight. There was a fist mm-hmm. fight. That's right. There was an actual brawl.
2: Yeah, there was there's a brawl and they like they kind of fly up to the Brooklyn Bridge and fight on the, the bridge for a little bit. But as soon as they they had saw the vehicles, they're like, Well, like we gotta use these vehicles. <laughs> and then and that's where Kent and his brilliant, you know, <laughs> mastermind team of fast and a furious mission impossible <laughs> <laughs> artists. Help realize something I would uh, would have never imagined to have happened, and and I love that. There's
1: a sequence in the movie of a a car chase, like a chase scene. Oh
2: man, that I love that sequence.
1: So it's funny. I'll have a a corollary story for you, Arthur, about that because I think you'll like this one. That was the beginning of the big push to get a bunch of scenes done that the vendor needed in order for us to make the release date. So we were rushing to get that sequence out the door. And this amazing pre artist named Dwayne Flock was leading that sequence. We had a huge team working on it. And we get to Thanksgiving week, and it's supposed to be done. And like we get one out the door. We, we get a version out the door, but because we still fervently believe in the best idea wins, I think we came back the week after Thanksgiving, and one of the artists, this guy named George Ants, who had worked on several Fast and Furious movies and is a car guy, comes to me and says... Now, how can you have a monster truck that doesn't crush any cars? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and at the same time, Seth Rogen was like, we got to make this more exciting. This isn't enough in there. And so we were doing success notes, and with, you know, which Jeff contextualizes SES notes and gives us marching orders. And then I told George, I'm like, all right, George, this is your big chance. I've got a day and a half. You got to give me a shot that, you know, highlights this aspect of it. And we're going to try and sell this back to the director. They didn't ask for it, but we're going to do it. And he comes up with this amazing shot where the truck gets forced over into a bunch of line of parked cars. And for a second, you don't, you think it's gone and then it jumps over all the cars and crushes on them. And then it comes over and, you know, bashes into the turtles. And that is all because of George, uh, Arthur, that that shot exists that highlights the truck you designed. So so that's two departments working together to try and make something more than what was originally conceived. And I think that's a great microcosm of why, you know, of departments plussing each other to make something better. I think that is, that was done throughout the film. For me personally, is a sequence that actually isn't a big sequence in there. That I Because that, as a supervisor, you don't, as I'm same as Arthur, normally you're not getting to like, you can come in and work on something, but you don't conceptualize anything. Like you're generally somebody who's guiding and you're helping other people achieve the vision. You have to come help come up with it, but rarely we're on the box doing it. We had one sequence that's in the film. This is not giving anything away. There's a moment near the end of the film where the turtles have to have their big decision moment. Like, are we going to do this thing or not? And they've had a big setback and they're in the middle of the city on top of a bus. And the storyboard artist did a great job. We boarded the, we executed it and the whole sequence took place on top of this bus. But, and we were the week of Christmas, literally the week of Christmas, we had worked all through up until Christmas Eve. And the director, Jeff, says, This isn't right. And I'm sorry, I know we're, we have to contractually or whatever reason rules, we have to get this out, but I can't, I will not let this go. It was debated and talked about because the vendor was very insistent that we hit send this over. And, and we sort of put our foot down and said, No, you have all this other stuff. This one is not going to go. And we came back in the new year and Jeff took inspiration from one of our things that we talked about was the way that Steven Spielberg does blocking, character blocking in his live action movies. And he decided he wanted them to come off of the the problems where they were standing on top of the bus. And the way that they come off the bus and move around and how the camera blocks with the characters, one to each other. And when there's these moments of connection, all are inspired by Catch Me If You Can. Because Catch Me If You Can has an amazing character blocking and cinematography in it it's one of the movies no one talks about about Spielberg but it's blocking is amazing and I got to do that with Jeff over the course of a holiday weekend he gave me some instructions I think it might have been MLK weekend and I had to come back and do it really quickly and that's what ended up being the blocking in the movie so that for me was because it was a big character moment too and those are the hardest to shoot character moments are really hard to shoot in a compelling manner where like you feel like you're supporting the actual dramatic storytelling and the acting in a way that isn't boring, that isn't all singles and two shots and wides, you know, the standard coverage. And that was, for me personally, a sequence that I think is means something to me.
0: Well, gentlemen, we could probably go every sequence of this movie and break it down. I encourage folks to go see it and then see it again. I think you'll notice more on the second time through. It's a great film.
1: Really enjoyed talking about this. It was really fun to talk about even though we spent years of our lives working on it, toiling away, I'm sure Arthur feels the same. I know it does feel
2: like years. Uh, even though for me it was only like a year and a half, but it felt like oh, it's, it felt like decades like like rolled by. Yeah, but it was pretty <laughs> impressive the amount of work that everyone was able to do on all levels, like all departments, like supervisors, artists. Like in a short amount of time. I don't want any producers or executives out there to be listening to this and think like you know, this is possible. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you want us all to have heart attacks by by age 40, but um, I think a lot of it is because one, Jeff Rowe, and I, I also need to compliment him on like someone who just, a director who has great taste and someone who I'm willing to follow to like, you know, the end of the world and same with our production designer, Yashara Kasai. It's like, it was so easy to work hard for them yeah, because they had such great vision. I would do it again if the opportunity comes around, <laughs> <laughs> all that work is up there on the
0: screen. Uh, on that note, we'll call it a wrap. So great having you guys here. Really enjoyed talking about this. Thanks, kid. Thanks. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You can find my contact info at our website below the line oneword.biz. That's B I Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media. So check it out. Gentlemen, it may be years from now, but when are we going to see your work again? What are you guys working on next?
1: <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm only consulting on a, a, a Spongebob feature at Paramount. I'm on there just for a little while, while they're uh, securing their head of cinematography right now. I'm just helping them out um, in the early stages. But I don't know what's going to be next. We'll have to see. I think all of us, when you finish, just like in live action, you need some time off. You got to recharge. And I'm the same. I'm
2: just on a break. I have a development project at Sony that's been going on for many years. And uh, so I occasionally just check it and see where that's headed. Uh, but we'll see. You would have to ask us kid like, I don't know, three or four months from now. <laughs> hopefully we have jobs by then. <laughs> oh, yeah, hopefully.
0: <laughs> Closing credits. Thanks to Curtis V for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners. I appreciate it. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. As I mentioned at the start of the show, Below the Line released two new episodes today. We're dubbing it Turtle Trek. And if you listen to this one first, please also check out my conversation with cinematographer Benji Bakshi from Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which just aired Star Trek's first ever musical episode. It's another fun conversation. Thanks again from Below the Line. How's that work? Does that work as a question? Does that make sense? That that's ties a great in, question. Trying like, <laughs> okay. I, I, like, to phrase it differently, it? <laughs> you guys think, or that came out? No, right. no. I, right. I, I think, I think that's great. great. Oh, yeah. that's great.